Howdy, it's PNN. I'm your host, Brooke Hines, and it is Sunday, May the 2nd, 2021. It's the day after May Day, or as Biden likes to call it, Loyalty Day. Um, we've got a good show for you tonight. We have uh, the Justice Report. Janine Moloff has a super cool interview with UN Rapporteur. Marjorie Cohn, who uh, helped write the UN report on human rights abuses in United States policing. So super important. Oh boy, Uh, it's a good one. So it's coming at the end of the show. I also had a great conversation with a uh, um, uh, person that I've bumped into a a bit on social media. It goes by the handle Mugrim, M-U-G-R-I-M-M. And uh, I noticed that he was doing a project that compared FDR's first 100 days to Joe Biden's first 100 days. And uh, I wanted to get him on the show to talk about that for the 100 days. So I've got that little piece coming up for you. Um, And I've done a little bit of reflecting on what the last... uh, Uh, what this last week was about, what Joe Biden's speech was about. And um, I recorded a piece on it. And, um, you know, I could just I could just play that right now. That's what I could do if I if I so thought that I would do that. Yeah, let's go ahead and do that. Um, We're going to jump right in and uh, a little note uh, at the end. As I was recording this, I And part of the reason why I'm a little bit like, I don't know about this, is because it's kind of dark. You know, our first 100 days, I know that a lot of people want to jump up and down because the orange menace is no longer upon us. But um, we're not moving forward either, despite, you know, as much as... Uh, media elites and party elites would like everyone to would like to gaslight everyone into thinking that Joe Biden has had the most progressive or socialistic first 100 days. That just isn't the case. And, you know, as you go through uh, all of the list of things that really need to be happening, we need to find off ramps, you know, so that we can fix some of these problems before they hit a tipping point. We're not doing that. We're not doing that work. So, You know, I don't want to, I really don't want to land on a sour note there. Um, So I, uh, I, I dug a little bit deeper. And after this, we'll come back and I actually found a positive story to uh to share with you guys so i'm very excited about that but first let's just look at the last week and the 100 days and we're just going to get right into it right now and then we'll be back in a bit with something positive okay so let's uh let's reflect on this week we uh this was the week of uh the 100 days, the much vaunted 100 days. And I've got an interview with uh, um, someone you guys might know from Twitter uh, who goes by the handle of uh, Mugrim, M-U-G-R-I-M-M. And uh, he just goes by Grim uh, on the show. But he did a really cool project that is looking at 
clippings, New York Times clippings, comparing FDR's first 100 days to Joe Biden's uh, first 100 days. And so he's, and this has become a larger project where he's uh, looking to create a timeline of the two administrations side by side. Very, very cool. So we got um, Grim on to talk about that. Um, but, you know, it just, I just wanted to reflect on this, like maybe kind of expand a little bit before I play the segment with Grim because uh, I, I'm really feeling in my reaching out on, on social media and people reaching back to me, I'm really feeling that there is a kind of numbness to how we are uh, experiencing uh, COVID right now, how we're experiencing job loss. Uh, there's anxiety over a uh, looming economic crash. Uh, we're, we're doing absolutely nothing to uh, make things better. And meanwhile, you've got the media with this insane, uh, made up manufacturing consent uh, talking point that uh, that Biden's administration is is the most social socialist, progressive, uh, far left administration ever. That there has never been, never, ever been an administration more to the left and more uh, appeasing of the uh, left's tendencies. And I know absolutely no one who agrees with that. Um, and uh, I thought that I was on the left and I thought that everybody else I knew was pretty much on the left and nobody pretty much thinks that. So uh, that's basically the media licking each other's butts. Like that has absolutely no bearing in reality, um, and and that is to underscore again how important the work is that that Grimm is doing with the two timelines and putting them side by side. Now uh, we are in a much different time than uh, FDR was operating in uh, after the Depression and during World War II. We uh, thank goodness, and we have another set of urgent issues that, that we need to address, uh, like with COVID. And I thought that it was pretty jaw dropping that in his speech and in his the, the next uh, push for legislation to address what's going on in the country, there is zero, absolutely nothing in the way of of a of medical reform or healthcare reform or anything that that makes it easier for uh, uh, regular people to get healthcare, um, you still have to pretty much um, uh, participate in the feudal system where uh, where you know a corporation uh, deigns you know deigns to. Uh, um, provide coverage for you and your family and, and and you're paying and I've covered this so many times before me and my husband pay about twenty thousand dollars a year just in insurance and that doesn't count what the employer is paying in insurance and that doesn't count our co-pays or the amount of money that uh when you actually do get sick and you know it seems like something happens every year. Either somebody has appendicitis or somebody else uh, breaks a bone or something like that. You know, the, all of that money, $20,000 a year, still doesn't begin to cover when something happens. So, like, our 
deductible is probably around five or six or seven thousand dollars. So you you have something like that happen where you break a bone or you get appendicitis and uh, you are going to have out of pocket about five thousand dollars just, you know, just to start just to get the get the meter started. But also in a review of the last hundred days, uh, another issue that is uh, looms large in the public ima- imagination, it looms large in the public's imagination, in my imagination, and and you know, in people who care about what's going on who have to live in this world, it does not seem to matter one iota to people in the media. And this issue, is, uh, in particular, is a. Uh, uh, police violence. And tonight we have a, an interview with the UN uh, rapporteur, uh, Marjorie Cohn, uh, who uh, helped to author the report for the United Nations on uh, human rights abuses by U.S. police forces. Now, I also find it really remarkable that there is nothing in the first 100 days uh, package that addressed any of that, you know, uh, even though all of last summer we we had cities on fire because uh, uh, police are just murdering people left and right. It's uh, uh, our protests were largely centered on Black Lives Matter, but you know, I'm here to tell you that this is this is not something that is uh, you're not if you're not black, you're also not safe. Like uh, I was beaten up by a cop when I was in college. OK, a, 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 a white girl, you know, driving a Honda. And uh, uh, I, I mean, this is something that that we all are affected by one of the stories as a matter of fact that i was sharing on this was a, a woman from um i believe it's a uh, loveland colorado um an older woman she's in her 70s she has uh, dementia she had wandered away from a walmart and um she had had some things on her uh, that she hadn't paid for again dementia patient and she she was stopped by someone at the store and offered to pay and uh, they did an exchange or whatever. She left the stuff there and then she just takes off. Well, the, the store called the police and the police went and and assaulted this woman walking down the road in uh, Loveland. Yes, it's Loveland and it's in Colorado. The cop who pulled her over, pulled her over as she was walking, his name is Austin hop h-o-p-p and uh yeah he he, he broke her, her leg and he broke her arm and then him and the other officer was a woman daria jalali uh, laughed while they were watching the footage the body cam footage laughed at the noise her arm made popping as they broke it like that was fucking funny to them okay oh my god i'm sorry i'm getting a little upset yeah, that that is uh, I I have my own PTSD about cops and uh, cop violence and shit. So, um, so uh, residents are marching now in uh, Loveland, Colorado, demanding justice for Karen Garner, the um, older woman who was who was attacked and assaulted, and 
uh, injured by these police officers. So I'm surprised that that wasn't mentioned either in the 100 days speech. We also have, and this was something else that wasn't mentioned, and I, I would like to hear a real honest conversation about this, is uh, the CEO of Emergent, the vaccine maker whose lab mishaps spoiled millions of doses of the Johnson & Johnson COVID vaccine, sold $10 million of stock shortly before news of the screw-up hit the public. He should be sentenced to five years as a laboratory animal for testing experimental drugs on humans, right? Um, I'm reading from a great article from Jeffrey St. Clair in uh, the Counterpunch uh, magazine website. Uh, We need to have clear, concise, and honest reporting on what is going on with the reactions that people are are having to these vaccines and uh when people are injured from uh from a bad batch or whatever it is it is in our best interest to have an open honest transparent and accountable conversation about that and what i'm seeing is the opposite right now i'm seeing there uh being a lot of pressure Uh, to self-censor and to not talk about what's going on in that arena. Of course, we're all very glad that there are, uh, that there is a vaccine uh, option to, uh, to uh, combat COVID with, but we also know that, that people still catch COVID from these vaccines. In other words, the mRNA vaccine actually kind of rewrites your DNA and uh, uh, so that there's another little uh, cleavage site, you're tricking your body. In other words, this this isn't an attenuated virus. This is this is telling your body to create and to adapt uh, to an environment where these uh, furin cleavage sites are um, evident. Anyway. Um, we don't we've never used these in humans this is wide-scale human experimentation and i think we need to to you know get comfortable with that and and understand that that's actually what what we're doing uh with this and it's not stopping people i mean people are not going to not get the vaccine just because you know we are transparent and accountable in how those vaccines uh are um affecting people uh, it will increase, like with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, when they paused the use of the vaccine because of clotting trouble uh, in, in some people, uh, that raises our, uh, uh, that raises our comfort level with the, with the um, intervention, with the medical intervention. So, you know, we just need to be a little bit more honest and we, and we need to have a, a little bit more openness with regard to how how uh, populations of people are doing with the vaccine now we've uh, talked about on the show quite a bit in the past that uh, i'm one of these people that has uh, me and cfs and fibromyalgia so i'm in i'm in this group i'm in this cohort of people who already have uh and mine seems to have come after an infection i already have a post what what long haulers have is a post viral syndrome. I already suffer from something that is much like that post viral syndrome that people suffer from with COVID. And part of the uh, um, profile of 
what I had as I was getting sick was clotting issues. And so this is something that gets flagged on me with regard to going and taking the vaccine. Now, uh, just in case anybody listens to the show who is also uh, ME-CFS, which is chronic fatigue sy- syndrome and fibromyalgia, ME is my- myalgic encephalomyelitis. Uh, if you fall into that cohort, there is some really good uh, research and um, I guess tips for getting the, the vaccine that um, comes out of uh, uh, South Florida. I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes, but there's um, uh, one of the bigger researchers in, in this field is located here in Florida. And uh, she put out a really helpful uh, sheet of information for for people like like myself who have this. Um, moving on, I want to move off of the the COVID thing real quickly. On the climate change front, another thing that uh, wasn't addressed in the uh, hundred day speech, we still have uh, an an extent uh, climate catastrophe looming over us, but we also have multiple other environmental. Uh, pressures that are uh, extreme to say the least so so for instance we we uh, found out this week that um, an ingredient formulation uh, the exact chemical content which remains undisclosed because it's proprietary but it's it's an ingredient formulation in the uh, weed killer roundup kills 96 percent of tested bees within 24 hours so if you're familiar with the problem that we have with the um the honeybee colony um, collapse syndrome. And it seems like we know and have known for quite some time that Roundup is uh, a culprit here. And we're not doing anything about that. And the reason why we're not doing anything about that is because uh, we have, uh, we are experiencing or we are in the middle of a merger of our government, the American government, with corporate interests. It is a, and we are, um, if you remember I.G. Farben from um, from uh, World War II, you know, the chemical company that um, worked with the Nazis to produce the Zylon gas. And, and uh, of course, the criticism there is that uh, when you have a merging of corporate interest and with the government's interests when those when those two come together into one that is what Mussolini called you know your classic fascism and it looks like it looks like to me that that is a thousand percent what is going on all around us everywhere you look whether it's has to do with the environment and climate change whether it has to do with healthcare and whether or not we can see a doctor or whether or not we can trust a vaccine and it, it and it's it's definitely extent in uh, how our own personal economies are right now and whether or not we are going to be able to have a job or a roof over our head in the near future in the near you know uh, with this economic collapse looming over us in all of this we are not seeing any kind of nod to people instead we are seeing a Uh, stronger bonds, ever more stronger bonds between the corporate elite 
and the government. And so the way that that works is that it, it's it the corporate interests enjoy the full force of governmental uh, um enforcement and implementation behind them and so normal regular work working people and workers who are you know in in unions at a historically low rate we have no way to fight back no one is looking after our interests as as uh, consumers or as workers or as um you know people who need uh health care or people who need to live in a world that isn't on fire or uh, with the sea level rising and to the point where, you know, the beach in Florida moves like, you know, however miles inland. No one's looking out for our interest. And, uh, and so I think in the absence of having a Donald Trump in, in the White House with all of that intense focus on his habits and his personal appearance and the way that he presented himself to the media and the way that he tweeted and just every single goddamn thing that he did you know was was reported on and obsessed over and chatted about like it, it to ridiculous excess now what do we do we've got biden in office who it doesn't he doesn't come out and talk to the to the media. He's not that involved. He's he has very he he's not a very hard worker. He's he's got like a nine to five uh, um, work day. He works about the same hours as that Trump did. Uh, he takes weekends off same same way that Trump did. Maybe he's not on the golf course, uh, but or he doesn't promote what he's doing on the weekends. But he's not working on the weekends. That's not the kind of president he is. The kind of president that Joe Biden is is. A placeholder. He's a placeholder. In a lot of ways, Joe Biden is starting to remind me a lot of Ronald Reagan. Now, Ronald Reagan was um, one of his big features for moneyed elite is that he had been a corporate spokesperson for many years um, before you know, be becoming the governor of California and, uh, and then, you know, but uh, during his time when he was working in Hollywood, uh, and so he knew the ropes, he knew how to identify himself. He knew how to identify his interest and his identity with whatever product and whatever corporation that he was selling. And, you know, they, it worked when he was the, the governor of California that he put this nice, happy, smiley face on whatever corporate interests, you know, were, were uh, competing for advantage at the time. And, uh, you know, so that was like a trial run and then he's elected president. And, you know, then there was eight years of Ronald Reagan doing the exact same thing. And it's been this long project of merging the U S government behind corporate interests so that corporate interests enjoy the full force of, of, uh, protection and implementation, uh, from, from the government. Well, that, that friends, that is, um, that is fascism in a nutshell. And what I see Biden doing right now, while he's not a, a loud, grotesque 
caricature of of a person the way that um, Donald Trump was, he is uh, quietly, you know, doing all of the things that corporations would want him to do in order to continue this project of this merger. There is nothing in his 100-day speech to indicate that he's taking any other kind of direction from this, as a matter of fact. And so while you have the media saying, oh, he's the most socialistic president ever, and he's the most progressive, and, and, and the left really, he's doing everything that the left could possibly want. Well, that is a fantasy world, and that is absolutely not what is going on. Uh, I just outlined a few of the things that, that we need to see some kind of movement on. And, uh, you know, instead of, you know, addressing any of those issues, what he's done is he's announced a ban on menthol cigarettes. <laughs> and you really couldn't have, you really couldn't ask for, you, you know, a, a more laughable uh, suggestion for, you know, everyone is out here, you know, like the meme healthcare PLS, please. We just need some help. We're in the middle of pandemic. We need some healthcare. I uh, can't give you that, but tell you what, I can take away your cigarettes well, now that's going to piss a lot of people off. That's going to piss off a lot of smokers. You don't want to take away people's cigarettes. You really don't. Don't do it. Um, and this is particularly pernicious and paternalistic because menthol cigarettes are consumed uh, largely by black consumers. 85% of uh, the consumption of men mentholated tobacco is in the African-American community. And so, so instead of doing anything to actually freaking help anybody, instead of doing anything, you know, like uh, uh, lowering the age of, of Medicare eligibility, I mean, imagine, imagine what that would do for, for, uh, for the economy if, you know, the age of eligibility were lowered to 55, um, I turned 55 this week, by the way, uh, Yay, I get a 10% discount at the dispensary for that. I, that's the only discount that I'm aware of that exists um, at 55. Um, if we didn't have to pay, if, if at 55 I got Medicare and we didn't have, a, my husband's employer wasn't pay, having to pay for our insurance and, and his in a few years when, when he's eligible, would be eligible at 55, then that would be $20,000 a year at least on our end. It's probably more like 40000 a year uh, that, that the employer doesn't have to expend on that particular employee. Now, that's just looking at it. That's just, you know, dollars and cents looking at it from the standpoint of a spreadsheet. OK, that's not to say, you know, that uh, I don't want to give that primacy or center that over uh, the the human rights aspect or, you know, the uh, the human decency aspect of people actually being able to go to see a doctor. But. You know, since we're swimming in these waters and since, you know, this is the uh, characteristic that our um, that our 
country is is has taken to uh you know let's just talk about it in that terms forty thousand dollars a year that they wouldn't have to expend on that one employee that would make that uh person's labor a lot less expensive to obtain because of the health care um cost and that money could then be uh put back into that employee's, uh, you know, retirement plan, which like, fuck, we don't have a retirement plan. Nobody I know, Gen X, nobody I know has a retirement plan unless you went to work for the state or the federal government at, right upon graduation and stuck with it. I don't know anybody with, uh, with any kind of retirement plan. It just doesn't exist. So we're stuck. And it's not just that we're stuck in terms of being uh, treading water and afraid of what's going to happen when we can't work any longer, afraid of what's going to happen with the environment and climate change. It's, it's not just those things. Because what's underlying all of this and, and what really should scare the shit out of everybody is this merger of corporate and governmental interests because that my friends is what is going to affect your children's futures and their children's futures and you know like let's let's not even try to extend out from there because i i can't even imagine too many futures after one or two generations at the rate we are going there isn't going to be a future Oh my God, that is just so dark. And I am so sorry to uh, to you know land on such a dark note. Let me see if I can find anything else that uh, that that I can lay down that is less awful. Hold on. I want to insert this little thing that is kind of uh, at least it's not dark. All right. Yeah, the New Yorker on April the 30th, the New Yorker published a story called How the Pentagon Started Taking UFOs Seriously. This is by uh, author Gideon Lewis Krauss. And subhead, for decades, flying saucers were a punchline. Then the U.S. government got over the taboo. And so... I'd seen this kicking around on UFO Twitter for a while. I saw Jamal Thomas cover it. And, you know, I was like, oh, God, now I got to read this 44 page. This is a 44 page. If you print it out, 44 pages of basically a it's a treatment of the history of uh, looking at UFOs in the United States specifically and specifically uh pertinent to a military side of things so it's all the nuts and bolts stuff as they say uh the the writer the author got in touch with leslie kane who has uh really she's written the book that is the most considered the most grounded and respectable uh, uh, uh treatment of ufology uh and i found this interesting in this article the author writes ken and her name is k-e-a-n but it's pronounced kane kane grew up in new york city a descendant of one of the nation's oldest political dynasties 
Her grandfather, Robert Winthrop Kane, served 10 terms in Congress. He traced his ancestry on his father's side to John Kane, the South Carolina delegate to the Continental Congress, and on his mother's side to John Winthrop, one of the Puritan founders of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. She speaks of her family's legacy in rather abstract terms, except when discussing the abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison, her grandfather's great-grandfather, whom she regards as an inspiration. Her uncle is Thomas Kane, who served two terms as New Jersey's governor and went on to chair the 9-11 Commission. Now, I didn't know this background of Leslie Kane. And yeah, I, I, you know, I'm one of these people that, you know, has taken a, an interest in this. That's a long story. I might have covered it in another episode. But um, I was interested to find out this part of her background. She is very, from a very elite family. She uh, attended the Spence School, went to college at Bard, and, you know, kind of had that life of, you know, someone who is, you know, from a prominent family. And, uh, you know, spent her time uh, doing spiritual seeking. She founded a Zen uh, uh, center in upstate New York. She worked as a photographer for the Cornell Lab of Ornithology um, in the late 1990s. And this is kind of a non sequitur. They go right from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology to uh, a visit, she just out of the blue, visited Burma to interview political prisoners. And uh, that's how she stumbled into a career in investigative journalism. Now, no one stumbles into Burma, okay? No one stumbles into uh, investigative journalism. I mean, it, it, it... I I can imagine that the uh, child, a very prominent family in the United States, would, uh, you know, kind of flop around and, you know, wind up doing this, this sort of thing. But stumbled into a visit to Burma to interview political prisoners. I think that's really interesting. That indicates to me that she has some uh, connection to the State Department, possibly, um, possibly uh, uh, Ned or one of those uh, kinds of groups there. Um, Leslie Kane's thing about UFOs is that she writes from the standpoint of the Cometa report. Uh, Cometa um, is a, a report that was written uh, in 1997, uh, or no 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 that's the wrong date it it was written it was written by uh retired french general generals scientists and space experts and it was entitled ufos and defense for what must we prepare ourselves for what must we prepare ourselves and so this is a a military frame on the ufo thing and the the author's uh, known as Cometa, had analyzed numerous UFO reports along with the associated radar and photographic evidence, blah, 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 blah. Basically, they're uh, t- 
takeaway from this is that, well, if you got all this stuff flying around in your airspace and you don't know what it is, then it is by definition a military threat. And that's the frame that Leslie Kane takes to this going forward. Now I'm going to flip the page right back to where uh, she stumbled into Burma uh, and uh, in into a career in investigative journalism. And pretty much right directly after this uh uh, Burma stuff is when she gets she starts her work in UFOs and ufology now that is significant to me because I think that there is I think there's a lot that's not being said even in a 44 page article in the New Yorker that is essentially a a, a profile of the author Leslie Kane even though it's a done as a um uh, historical analysis of ufology and ufos in the uh in uh, the united states she has a particular a very particular take on this and i think that it's very interesting that it's her particular take now she's she's also notable for being the one who who uh co-authored the original article in the new york times the uh uh famous or infamous December 2017 article that introduced the world to the um, little videos of the uh, um, fast mover and the gimbal, uh, you know, all of these uh, um, videos that were taken from the cockpit of fighter jets that were observing these objects. Now, I've talked about this in the past and how I think that, you know, when the way that this has come back up in the media, you know, like all of a sudden uh, Politico has a, a reporter that is dedicated to this UFO beat and the New York Times has gotten into the action. And now the New Yorker with this 44 page, you know, h historical analysis of things. I want to take a step back and I want to say what is going on here. Uh, and also say that you can't, I don't think that there is a way for people to digest this material if you're not also at the same time looking at uh, reportage from the um, military technology side of the world. So like reading the war zone and Tyler Rogaway stuff. You need to know, you need to be able to put these pieces together in a way that that is on the same level as the people who are writing about it. They're writing about it from a military standpoint. And they're looking at this in terms of military strategy. Uh, the article goes a long way to uh, to explaining this is exactly what I would say, is that uh, UFOs during the Cold War, the whole idea of them was shut down because uh, that was a geopolitical decision uh, that was that people thought was right for the cold war and they had a lot of that was a lot of heavy heavy lifting because as the author of this article states in the 1950s it was something like 80 some percent of people in the united states just took it for granted that ufos were flying around everywhere and that's because they had been covered in uh in the in the u.s press we had had uh you know front page stories about ufos flying over the white house there was the kenneth arnold incident in uh in the pacific northwest just 
all kinds of crazy, crazy shit. Now, in 2002, this is important. In 2002, Larry Landsman, the director of projects, the Sci-Fi Channel, invited Leslie Kane to lead a broad public effort seeking new government records on uh, well-documented UFO cases. And they employed uh, a PR group, Podesta Mattoon. Okay. Um, Edwin S. Rothschild, the head of Podesta Mattoon's energy and environment sector at the time, remembered telling Kane, quote, most people may have this idea that there's something out there, but there are also people who think that if you start talking about it, you could be a kook. So they kept it to themselves and they wanted this PR firm. Uh, to draw a line between the people who would have credibility and those who wouldn't. Now, this is where John Podesta comes in. And this is where, you know, the blink uh, 152, whatever the guy is. I don't care for any of that. But um, so John Podesta and this PR group get involved in this. And what isn't said in this article is what their what their client wanted them to do. You know, so so you want to, you know, separate the wheat from the chaff in terms of what's important and what isn't. But what to what end? Why were they doing that? Why would you expend the energy? Why would you why would you put the resources on that if there wasn't something in the end that is important? And I'm going to just cut right to the chase. And I'm going to tell you that uh, right now uh, I am currently watching two shows on television that the uh where the uh conceit the the central conceit of the shows have to do with meta materials uh one the one show is debris and the other show is the nevers and both of those shows have this conceit that uh ufos or alien ships have dropped some kind of debris or or pixie dust or uh, items or something uh that have affected humans and you know the, and so the stories have to do with how that all plays out blah 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 this article goes into a lot of uh robert Big- bigelow's stuff out in nevada and the skinwalker ranch and all of that now robert bigelow built a special building to house meta materials that are supposedly from crashed aircraft he also got 22 million dollars uh that uh, harry reed senator harry reed was able to twist arms and get some money sent over to him i'm not ready to say that that money was just given to him because you know of political patronage or whatever but um the bottom line here is things keep pointing to the potential of there being some sort of metamaterials in people's possession that they want to bring out of the black world, the black compartmentalized projects world, into some kind of production to use them, uh, you know, in, in in a military application or commercial application. I think that's what's going on. I think that you don't get all of this press and you certainly don't get a 44-page article in The New Yorker talking about this stuff unless there was some kind of money on the line. And honest to God, this is a money situation. Now, there you go. That is your fun story of the week. And we are going to be right back with uh, with Grim. And we're not going to be Grim. We're going to be fun. But we got a lot to talk about, me and Grim. Here, just a second.
And we're here with Grimm, who has created an archive uh, comparing FDR and Biden's first 100 days. So I thought we'd bring him on to kind of reflect on the last 100 days of Biden's administration on this, the day right after Joe Biden did his address, looking back on his 100 days. So welcome, Grim. Hey, I'm glad to be here. So tell us a little bit about the project. First off, just tell us a little bit about the project that you have been putting together and your plans for it going forward. So the project has evolved. It started off with a day-to-day recounting of uh, clips, both from the New York Times in uh, 1933 and uh, this year, going day by day, looking at what FDR did versus Biden. Um, And part of it was just to kind of demonstrate to people, um, there were all these FDR-Biden comparisons getting met. Um, And I wanted to kind of show people both the scale and pace of the difference between them, um, which there's definitely a lot of fair criticisms of FDR, but uh, it is undeniable that more was getting done faster. Um, And uh, a lot of people have very accurately told me, well, FDR had uh, more Democrats at the time in both the Senate and the House, which is true, um, but also I'm not the one who made the comparison. So uh, that was... Biden's team and the Democratic Party in general. Right. And they do that every every election. Every time a new president is elected, they, they start with the 100 days thing, uh, whether it's right. fair or they not. They did it with – I remember when they did it with Clinton and I remember when they did it with Obama. Mm-hmm. And when I was Clinton, I was, I was a young kid and it's like one of my first memories was them talking about his first 100 days. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I was young at the time, too, and very idealistic about the Clintons. And, uh, you know, it, it took me quite a while to uh, to deprogram from that particular cult. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so tell us, um, how, how, with the cap on the 100 days, what is your... What is your assessment? Where do you think we are at now in 2021 in terms of getting a big, you know, getting something big started? So for for my estimation, the biggest floodgate that's kind of opened is the idea of giving money directly to people. Um, And that is one of the bigger differences between the two of them is that FDR did not have uh, that kind of, I mean, he did through fear. He did give direct cash to people, but it was, there was never a um, across the board kind of measure. Um, That said, there was also FDR was making structural and fundamental changes um, and Biden's more kind of shoveling cash at pre-existing structures and reinforcing them. Give us us an example of the structural things that FDR did. So FDR straight out of the gate shut down all the banks in the nation. Um, And uh, he eventually, the Senate um, reinforced him shutting them down. Uh, But the way he did it initially was pretty clever. He basically just said, um, your bank is supposed to be closed. Uh, We control the currency. Thus, we're the ones telling you so. And uh, there was kind of an implication of federal non-enforcement. If a bank was operating when they were supposed to be closed, the feds would just say, well, that's a you problem because you were operating when we told you to be closed. Um, So like if you withdrew money from a bank, they would still be responsible for whatever happened pre-close as an example. 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there were vouchers and stuff, and the vouchers, there was actually a big fight over vouchers in FDR's day to allow temporary transactions during the bank time, but it was almost exclusively to low-level customers, ironically. Uh, they were definitely watching the, uh, the bigger accounts and making sure they didn't move because they didn't want to risk insolvency. Um, comparable to, to Biden, though, uh, there's not really been any kind of major structural change on his part. Everything is reinforcing current systems as they exist. Um, and uh, I, I think it's you can't really say it's not the most we've seen in our lifetime. Um, but that's more of a uh, that, that's more of a mark against everyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, than an actual like praising of Biden because he you know he has a crisis larger than I would argue the recession in two thousand eight, um, and uh, this he's basically just capitalized on it by tossing a bunch of cash out. Uh, you know, that- uh, doesn't make it bad, but it's you know, it doesn't make it good either. That's a that's a really good thing to highlight here that the crisis right now is bigger and more dangerous I think some would say than 2008 because it's not just economic we have the healthcare side of it and we have people dying and so just as specifically towards uh, COVID and in this part of the equation, is there anything in Biden's first 100 days that, that sticks out to you as that was surprising or 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 on the other hand, is there something that he didn't do that that you would have liked to have seen? Uh, the the two most surprising things to me with Biden has been that one, uh, he's not done anything on the weekends. Um, and I don't particularly care about that argument for the record with a, a president, whether they're working on weekends or not. Um, but the Biden base was so obsessed with Trump golfing on the weekends, you know, mm-hmm. um, and by the week, I'm also saying his actual days are short. Biden's doing like nine to six each day, roughly, um, which were Trump's hours. I mean, Trump was doing the like or Trump may have been nine to five, but it was there's a hard like cutoff for most days. Um, that part's been kind of surprising to me and it makes sense with Biden's health and age and, um, everything he's got going on, but it's kind of one of the areas I thought they would power through just to, just for the beginning, just to kind of prove and make a distinction there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in terms of anything programmatic, um, Biden's been more openly hostile in a in a positive way to the Senate than I was anticipating. Um, I don't know how much of it is theater because not much has happened as a result yet. Um, But, uh, you know, it it could be just theater or it could be a legitimate anger about the abuse of um, the nuclear option. So I don't know which it is. Um, It's not really made an impact, though, uh, in any real meaningful way. It's just meant he's been more willing to openly say, you know, if we got to change the rules of the Senate, we got to change the rules of the Senate, which the moment he says that now it's something everyone else has to talk about, which is, you know, the power of being leader of the party. Mm -hmm. And when you say uh, the nuclear option, you are talking about the filibuster. 
Right, vote to cloture specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, just being able to table anything if you don't get your uh, uh, sixty votes. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know that's having sixty votes in the Senate. You know, is a pretty difficult thing to do in a modern context, mm-hmm. um, especially the way the parties have kind of decided to draw their lines. Um, I, I've definitely been surprised by the scope of. Um, the scope of the cash that's being given out mm-hmm. um, as well as uh, uh, the willingness to shovel it um, to specific things like, like childcare, for example. Um, but it's also kind of a, a downer in that it's, they're making it pretty clear. They think this is the minimum they can do. Right, like like childcare in this uh, families package is being held up as, uh, you know, we're not going to do student debt and we're not going to do uh, lowering the age for Medicare, but but we're doing this. It's kind of a substitute. Right. It's the you know you get this one and it's they don't want to give everything up because they don't want. I, I think they want people to keep voting, essentially. I think that's kind of part of what it is, is if everyone gets everything, there's a, a belief they'll stop showing up. Um, you, you've heard the same thing about Republicans and abortion, that no Republican actually wants to get rid of abortion, because if they do, then there's less incentive to show up for their elections. But I think every red state basically proves that's not a thing. Mm-hmm. That if you could get rid of every abortion clinic in the entire state but one, your followers will reward you since it's what they want. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, except for on our side, it's it's uh, whether or not people have health care or not. Um, yeah, exactly. And we're not doing that well on, uh, t- you know, holding the line on on abortion either. Um, at, Call back to the Clinton administration, by the way. Um, yeah, safe, rare, and uh, uh, was safe, accessible, and rare. I think were the three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and you know what was the subtext was shameful. <laughs> um, well, yeah, that's that subtext is so weird to me because it's it does get, like it conjures the image of like uh, a lady with like a card in her wallet and she whips it out. It's got nine punch holes and she's about to get her 10th. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's just like getting a fucking Sunday at Baskin Robbins or something. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm cursing a lot. <laughs> That's fine. I, w- okay. I, I have the explicit thing on the, on the podcast. Okay. <laughs> but it's, it's such a casual, like, you know, Oh, people will do it whenever they want. It's like, I don't think they will. I think they'll do it whenever they feel that they have to. Yeah, it's it, but, uh, it's not like Taco Tuesday, you know. It's, <laughs> it's not something you just. <laughs> yeah, anyway. it's it, it's not a casual process, and um, you know, it's there's a shocking amount of um, and it's just the makeup of America. I've lived in these places in hyper rural areas, and um. It's got its virtues and its downfalls, but one of its like downfalls is. Pe- I mean, I've known so many men in my life who think that like birth control is like the morning after pill, mm-hmm. and it's just like you take a pill every time you have sex. Like it's like, it's like a tums mm-hmm. for acid reflux, but like the acid's a baby. Mm-hmm. Like 
that's kind of their conception of it, not just like, oh, it slightly increases uh, estrogen levels to you know make the body not want to conceive because it thinks it already has a baby kind of thing. It was just the, it did not the, oh, there's hormones that tell your body to not make a baby. It's kind of a, I don't know. There's just, it's weird. It is. I agree. Now, what would you think FDR would would say about this whole parliamentarian situation with the fifteen dollar oh, minimum wage? He would say wage. fuck it immediately. He would have been like out of here. Oh yeah, he he would have been like the parliamentarian is the enemy of the people, and the enemy of the people is the parliamentarian. Like he would not have been vague about it at all. He would have one hundred percent called it out, and he would have like done it knowing it would look great, and no one would be mad at him for it. You know, I feel like a little bit of that would go such a long way. What we were talking about before about abortion and having something that you keep back that that makes people keep voting for you. I think Democrats have that wrong because when FDR, for instance, we're talking about Tennessee earlier, when FDR did Tennessee Valley Authority and brought electricity to to the mountains where I used to live, that created Democrats who voted in the, it, for generations, they only stopped voting Democrat about the seventies, and it, it, we're we're at the point where where we're almost on this quarterly cycle where uh, where uh, parties are trying to get voters every quarter or every uh, midterm instead of looking at, at the long term and building relationships. Yeah, absolutely. And there's um, it's one of the weirder things, too, for me is uh, FDR is in a modern in how people think of him in a modern context. They think of a someone who's completely uncompromising. And that was definitely the image he was projecting. There's a reason that image exists. It's not, you know, happenstance. He did basically very publicly say my way or the highway. Um, and. In private, his sales pitch when he was negotiating was more like, listen, if I say my way or the highway, it looks like I forced you into uh, compliance. That way you don't have to look like you actually endorsed what I did kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which was useful for Dixiecrats. Um, and it's why despite – there's a weird uh, dynamic where FDR's administration would fight for um, – they would fight for uh, black inclusion in different parts of the New Deal. Um, and it wasn't uh, because of uh, any kind of general belief of uh, – it's not because of any kind of modern precept we have in terms of race. It wasn't – they weren't trying to be woke. Um, it was literally just a fundamental, we don't want a massive underclass of just one group. Um because that's not going to end well, you know. Um, it is undeniable that FDR was trying to negotiate capitalism and preserve it to some degree. And part of that meant just not having like a massive amount of people who are unemployed um, and have uh, anything in common at all, right? Um, so the tone is definitely not woke at all. It's straight up, you know, we want the unwashed masses to to have jobs because otherwise we will, you know, be under their foot. Um, 
but the Dixiecrats obviously were, you know, they were obsessed with preserving their racial hierarchy. So the grand negotiations would usually be over pay differences. It would be stuff like 10 cents less for every black man employed over every white man. And uh, even the, the words men there, uh, it was because uh, there was a belief that every dollar that went towards women were wasted, um, which was it, it's ironic looking back because historically every study has said that women are far better about investing in their families and men are kind of the ones who blow all their money on stupid shit. Right. Um, <laughs> but um, I mean, it's, you know, there's there's studies for it. They're not, I, I don't think they're wrong. Um, but uh, anyway, the idea was if you gave money to a man, you're giving money to the head of the household and you're thus giving money to the household. Um, in fact, they passed one of the bad things FDR did in his first 100 days is he passed a law that said if you have two federal employees running a family of a father and a mother, the mother was now unemployed. Oh, wow. You know, yep. And it's uh, – ironically everyone like never looking for points on fdr they never like look for stuff like that where it was pretty messed up and the it was a totally anachronistic way to viewing things as we do but it was straight up like well by doing this we reduced 20 percent of redundant household jobs and now we have 20 percent more households covered by federal money mm-hmm but it's just, I mean, it's a totally bonkers way of looking at things. Um, it wasn't uncommon during his time for a father to just say, well, I can't make money, so I'm going to abandon you all for five years, and hopefully I come back with a big wad of cash. Mm-hmm. You're on your own in the meantime, but it's for your benefit, not mine. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that... Do you think that there's anything to, you know, a lot of people talk about uh, FDR coming from a, um, a a very rich background. And and some people say that that uh, afforded him a, a noblesse oblige, that that, that kind of got him out from under the thumb of uh, uh uh, moneyed interests to the point where he wasn't um, didn't feel supposedly didn't feel the need to to please them as much as someone who didn't come from a background of of wealth. Do you do you put much uh, stock in that? I think there's stock in the idea that because he was so wealthy already and so famous that when he worked against those forces on certain things, he got away with more than someone who had a genuine uh, like proletarian background would have gotten away with. Mm-hmm. Because at the end of the day, they would still say, OK, he's still one of us. And they may even try to murder him, which they did. But they would say, like, most days, OK, he's still one of us. So, you know, this is about long term maintenance of the system. Um but I don't put stock in the idea that his money gave him that protection alone, if only because Hoover was also one of the wealthiest Americans, um, also gave more money to charity in his time than literally anyone. It's kind of hilarious that he's just a weird libertarian dude. who was like, no, the federal government is not supposed to give money out. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, he, uh, FDR's money, if if the money part was the most important part, Hoover, I think, would have been on that train, too. Uh-huh. Um, but I think it's more FDR just valued being famous and, like, having a good rep 
and wanting to see his name on stuff. Um, I think those Trumpian comparisons aren't aren't too far off in terms of the vanity. Mm. Um, and the a big reality with FDR is a lot of what we think of as FDR is actually the work of his best friend, Harry Hopkins. And Harry Hopkins uh, is a figure in history more people should know about because he was the envoy to the Soviet Union. Um, he brokered the uh, alliance between France, the UK, the Soviet Union, and the US. That was his doing. All evidence kind of points to the fact that he was probably a hardcore communist. Um, and ironically, the one thing, the one thing he didn't like about the Soviet Union was um, their agricultural system. And he's basically said, I don't care what numbers they give me. I think their, their agricultural system's garbage. Uh, for a variety of reasons, and it turned out to be the one thing that the Soviet Union wasn't doing better on um, comparatively in terms of social programs compared to the United States. Wow. So we got real lucky. Um, I always try to point this out, too, because it's I, you know, I'm a big believer there's a depression around the corner post-corona. Um, and uh, people always get excited about that because they think of FDR. And my mind always goes to... Um, America was basically like the one country that didn't go full fash between Europe mm -hmm. and between Europe. I mean, basically between the white world, you know, nine out of 10 major countries went f like fash to one degree or another. And America, we like, even with our internment camps, we're like approaching it, but not quite as bad as, as Europe and, and, uh, I think that's important um, to keep in perspective. We basically got lucky because there was a secret communist who was guiding FDR and FDR did FDR did the Trump thing of like, you know, you will be in charge of foreign and domestic policy. And then like, I will just, you know, I'll be making America great again kind of thing. Like he just, he was about the image and he was like, I'll let the, my, my best friend do all the real work. I want to read the book that is the secret communist that saved the United States from fascism. Like that's, <laughs> that needs there's, to be several. <laughs> the irony is that the people who scream the loudest that he was a communist are actually like conservatives. Uh -huh. And the people who say he probably wasn't, and in my eyes have a worse argument based on the evidence are the, are, are people more left-minded. Um, I think he probably was though. Uh, he was also best friends with Eleanor and uh, he was a fail son, ironically. And his, uh, he grew up in a, a household where his, his mother and his sister were like coordinating some of the largest charity efforts in their, uh, in their um, state, which I think was Ohio. Um, and uh, he was basically not nearly as good at it. And uh, he, they, they told him all the time. They were pretty funny. They were ballbusters. They would tell him, "Hey, you know what? Like, you should take our ideology. And since you're a man, even though you're dumber than us, you can probably get much further." And that's exactly what he did. Oh my god, that's hilarious. <laughs> and, I mean, he he just kind of did the whole like, "All right, that <laughs> sounds like a plan." And he went to New York. He became a social worker. He befriended. Uh, one of New York's local politicians of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He then realized that, you know, FDR listened to Eleanor and everything anyway. Like she would always have kind of, um, he cared what she thought. Uh, 
and how happy she was. So he started making inroads with her and eventually he's like running the WPA and like getting Stalin and FDR to talk, you know? Wow. Well, you yeah. know, I, there's, I think you're absolutely right about there being a big danger right around the corner uh, in terms of our economic system, first of all, and secondly, whether or not that leads to a fascist or a more fascist turn, I think I would say. Um, And I worry that I don't see enough uh, appreciation of this, I guess, with with the way that, that people are viewing getting things done right now. Like there's not, to me... <clears throat> To me, the same urgency of uh, we got to fix some stuff or else people are going to turn sour really fast. That's kind of in the back of my mind on on things. And so uh, it it bothers me that Biden is letting Manchin and uh, Cinema get away with, you know, deep sixing his his whole agenda, which makes me wonder. is he really that upset about it? You know, is he really th- that, you know, unhappy with Mansion and Cinema? No. no, in fact, more than likely what happened is they, and I've been in these rooms before, I've done national uh, level politics and I've, I've been in these rooms in these negotiations. There's a pretty solid chance that they just got in a room. He said, okay, here's what I want. Uh, you're going to oppose it. Uh, I'm going to say something else. You're going to oppose it. And this is what we're eventually going to whittle down to in the public sphere. But this is the end of the line. And this is where the party's going to support you. Um, it was probably predetermined entirely. And everything we're saying is just for show. Um, so I don't think he has any issue with it. Now, granted, that doesn't mean it keeps Manchin from buying into it and then saying like, eh, you know, I'm I'm vote number 50. I'm, I'm going to... Uh, exercise the power and push it further and further, even though we have a prearranged deal. Um, in fact, I'd be shocked if he wasn't doing that. Mm-hmm. But I think Biden is just excited that he's getting things passed and that he's so beloved right now. He's got over 90% in party approval rating right now. He started at 98 and I think he's at 94. And there's always a post like when you get elected, there's always a surge your first week, but it's settling in the nineties. It's not, it's looking like better than Trump and even Obama on that front. Wow. Yeah. The democratic party's placated people who um, there's a lot of people I see who you keep theorizing that there's going to be some massive pushback, uh, you know, next year in the primaries. And, I, I have trouble envisioning it right now. You mean um, n- next year in the midterms or like, like what is your thought there? Yeah, well, uh, midterms, I mean, it's, uh, I could even, I could see like a, a no change kind of like plus minus a couple mm-hmm. house seats. I could see like they're not being a big swing, which would be a massive deal um, if that happened. Um and it's also a historic. What I'm saying is not. Um, I'm taking the uh, the bad odds when I say that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think people really don't comprehend how a lot of people 
are extremely excited that not only is Trump out, but they get to kind of ignore everything now. Oh, I totally get that. Well, listen, Grim, I appreciate you dropping by today. And this was very helpful for me uh, in my thinking on this. Is there a, how can people find you online to uh, learn more? I'm on Twitter at, uh, at M-U-G-R-I-M-M, Mugrim. Uh, and then I'm doing the uh, FDRV Biden project. And if you just search Google for FDRV Biden, uh, one word, you'll see it pretty quick. Cool, cool. I'll put a link in the show notes. And uh, thank you very much for stopping by. Absolutely. And thank you for having me. All right. And Janine recorded this for the Environmental Justice Report, as well as for the Sunday show. So we are going to drop you right in with uh, Marjorie Cohn joining Janine Maloff and uh, enjoy this conversation. Hi, Janine. How are you? Hi. I'm fine. I'm about, I'm just giving part of your introduction right now. Okay. So well known as just a huge scholar, uh, and the report was presented today in the International Commission of Inquiry on Systemic Racist Police Violence Against People of African Descent in the United States is the official title. This document has contributors from across the globe, and this is an important work. It's been needed to silence the mountain of lies coming from the far right and really document the truth about systemic racism uh, and systemic police brutality uh, where we see so many police-sponsored murders that just seemingly have no end in sight. Uh, your background is such, just for our audience, you're Professor Emerita at Thomas Jefferson School of Law. You taught there according to your biography from 91 to 2016. You're a former president of the National Lawyers Guild. You lecture, you write, you pretty much do everything. Uh, you served as a news consultant for CBS News and a legal analyst for Court TV. You've been a legal and political commentator on the BBC, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News. Well, we'll forgive you for Fox. Uh, <laughs> NPR <laughs> and Pacific. <laughs> I had to do it. One NPR time. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I understand. We'll forgive you this one time. NPR and Pacific Radio. Uh, you've authored some books. You authored a book titled Cowboy Republic, Six Ways the Bush Gang Has Defied the Law. You've co-authored another book with David Dow entitled Cameras in the Courtroom, Television in the Pursuit of Justice. And with Kathleen Gilbert, you authored Rules of Disengagement, the Politics and Honor of Military Dissent. You're editor and contributor to the United States in Torture, Interrogation, Incarceration, and Abuse as well as drones and targeted legal killing, legal moral and geopolitical issues. One of your books was cited actually in a U.S. Supreme Court opinion. Your articles have appeared in numerous journals, everything from the Fordham Law Review, Hastings Law Journal, Virginia, Virginia Journal of International Law, National Law Journal, and so on and so forth. You're a contributing editor to Juris, National Lawyers Guild Review, You've had columns appear in HuffPost, Truth Out, Truth Day, Consortium News, Common Dreams, and so on. And, you know, frankly, we're just so happy to have you back on the show. You were here earlier. And you've on, on multiple boards of directors. I can go on and on, but I, I know your time is valuable. 
So we're just going to get straight into it. All right. So we have this report that was released today. And again, as I read the title, the title is quite long, but it's important. Um, and that is basically uh, just, I was just looking at it too. Good Lord. The International Commission of Inquiry on Systemic Racist Police Violence Against People of African Descent in the United States. And, you know, basically what I saw some good coverage today, but let's start with the very beginning, okay? How did this report come about? What, what was its origins? Well, the Commission of Inquiry was established in the wake of the public execution of George Floyd after millions of people around the world protested his torture and execution by Derek Chauvin. And the families of Mr. Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Michael Brown, Philando Castile, joined 600 rights groups and petitioned the UN Human Rights Council to appoint a commission to investigate systemic racist police violence and human rights violations against people of African descent in the United States. But the Trump administration pressured the Human Rights Council and they backed down, but they, so they didn't establish that commission to investigate these human rights violations in the U.S., but they charged the High Commissioner of Human Rights with preparing a report about worldwide systemic racism and violation of international human rights by police. And so our commission said, we're going to establish a commission and look at this problem in the United States. And 12 commissioners judges, lawyers, professors, and experts from every continent held public hearings from January 18th to February 6th, and all of these cases um, selected were hearings involving the killings of, and, and one paralyzing of Jacob Blake, mm -hmm. the killings of, right. of 43 people, unarmed people or people who posed no threat to the police or others. And in the hearings, the families of the victims testified, lawyers, community activists, um, the commissioners heard evidence from expert witnesses and examined the national data and came up with findings and recommendations. Mm. So, and that's very, very telling right now. Um, so this work's been truly needed to stem the tide, not only of police violence, but the tide of false narratives that we see coming from the far right. Um, and the report does call out the present state of police brutality and systemic racism. Um, in fact, today I saw coverage uh, that was in the Guardian newspaper, good coverage too, um, and basically it was a piece by Ed Pilkington and the headline was, quote, police killings of black Americans amount to crimes against humanity, international inquiry fine. Um, are you surprised that the, they came out with such a strong statement in the headline? No, I'm not, because one of the things that makes our report unique, and I should say that I served as one of four rapporteurs who actually drafted the report, which is my involvement in it. I'm not a commissioner. Um, but one of the unique things, in addition to bringing the voices of the victims' families and community members and attorneys to the fore, is that we found, the commissioners found, that 
systemic racist police violence in the United States amounts to crimes against humanity, that a, a prima facie case, which means there is basically probable cause to believe that officials condoned and committed crimes against humanity um, based upon this systemic racist police violence. And that is a pursuant to a widespread or systematic attack directed against the black civilian population. And the crimes right. against humanity from the Rome Statute for the International Criminal Court are the crimes against humanity of murder, severe deprivation of liberty, torture, persecution, of people of African descent in the United States and inhumane treatment. And these are, we are asking the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court to open an investigation into possible crimes against humanity committed by and condoned by officials in the United States. Right, right. And, and, and I'm kind of, you know, I'm listening to this, and I, I know that the United States, through both Democratic and Republican administrations, has refused time and time again to join and or submit to the International Criminal Court. So that given the case, and we, we don't know if the Biden administration will go, you know, will submit to it or not, um, if they don't, if the U.S. remains one of the nations that refuses to recognize the International Criminal Court, then how do we, you know, there's a, there's a bunch of, of uh, recommendations, but first of all, how do we get some of those recommendations to pass? How do we make some of this stick if the U.S. refuses to acknowledge the ICC? Well, there's a couple of issues here. The ICC is a criminal court, which means it brings individual leaders and officials to justice. And mm -hmm. the ICC, the, the, the Bush administration, actually took the U.S. signature off of the Rome Statute for the ICC. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And uh, and so so we don't we haven't signed it, we haven't ratified it. And one of our recommendations is that the Biden administration sign and ratify the treaty. And that takes two thirds of the Senate to agree to it. And I don't mm -hmm. think that'll happen. But there is right. a provision in the Rome Statute for the United States, even though it's not a party to the Rome Statute, to right. accept jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court for purposes of this Crimes Against Humanity investigation. Now, failing that, there is another doctrine to hold people criminally liable for the systemic racist police violence, and that's called universal jurisdiction, where some Ooh. crimes are so atrocious, including crimes against humanity, that any country right. can punish them, even if there's no direct relationship with that country, the Israel um, tried, convicted, mm -hmm. and, and executed Adolf Eichmann for his crimes during the Holocaust, even though right. they had no direct connection with Israel. The U.S. has right. also used universal jurisdiction. But then, beyond that, um, the report includes recommendations addressed to right. the executive branch of the U.S. and the con and Congress and state and local governments, as well as the High Commissioner of Human Rights, we are asking her to take our report and use it uh, as a basis for writing her report, um, and there are other recommendations as well. Right. I was, I was looking at the recommendations, and uh, for one thing, and we'll talk about the recommendations a bit now, the report details how police practices, particularly of stop and frisk and other pretextual stops, in other words, an excuse to stop somebody, was called out, uh, especially against blacks, as, quote, order, order maintenance 
And that really, it, it dates back to the old slave patrols. And the report pointed out that these particular pretextual stops uh, have been granted an assist in recent years by the Supreme Court as a way around the Fourth Amendment. Could you comment on that and explain it to kind of a, an audience of lay people? Yes. The stop-and-frisk policy, which is lawful under Terry versus Ohio, a Supreme Court case, allows mm -hmm. police um, to stop people and search them, do a frisk on less than probable cause. And this is an invitation to racial profiling. Um, there is also um, a, a case called Wren versus United States where the Supreme Court, a unanimous Supreme Court, including the liberals on the Supreme Court, um, said that pretextual stops are okay for any minor traffic violation, even if the police officer is motivated by racism. And, uh, and so... We also um, talked about that as well, um, these uh, pretextual stops. Uh, for example, Tavis Crane was one of the victims of a police yeah. killing his little daughter through candy out the window, and the police oh. used that as a means to stop and ultimately kill him. And, uh, and then the stop and frisk, we have um, Eric Garner, we have George Floyd, right. minor offenses. Eric Garner, right. it was loose cigarettes, untaxed cigarettes. George Floyd, allegedly a $20, a counterfeit $20 bill. These minor offenses based on racism to stop them, hassle them, and ultimately kill them. Oh, God. Yeah, and, and it's, it's insane. Like, I saw one of the uh, cases, the case of Kayla Moore. Could you describe to our audience about that? Because it was particularly, you couldn't watch any part of the of the testimony from the families without just sitting there and crying. Could you describe what happened to Kayla Moore briefly? Yes, Kayla Moore was killed in her own home during a mental health crisis. The police had an arrest warrant for another person with her name who was 20 years older. And they tackled her, they suffocated her, and then as she lay on the floor with her skirt up, they made, and she stopped breathing, they made nasty comments about her sexual orientation. And Ooh. it was reprehensible. And one of the findings of the commission is that um, police violence against um, uh, police engaged in sexual and physical violence against black, cis, and transgender women. And right. uh, black women are uh, victims of police violence in disproportionate numbers, and Kayla Moore's case is an example yeah. of that. Yeah. And, and, you know, once again, a, a request for a mental health assist shouldn't end in somebody's death. Um, and one of the things I noticed about that particular case is they put her in what's called a wrap, which was basically she suffocated. They, they hogtied her, uh, and she was on her stomach, and she was pressed against, I think it was a mattress, and she, she suffocated. Yes, four police officers were on top of this woman. It, it was absolutely outrageous. And in terms it of is. mental health crises, many of the cases that the commissioners heard involved people in in the middle of mental health crises where either they or family members had called for assistance. Not They didn't always call the police. They called, for example, there's a number 311 in some jurisdictions to ask for mental health mm -hmm. help. Um, and, uh, and you know, therapy and, and people who were trained, and yet the police came, 
overreacted and very quickly killed many, many people. There was an example of the case of Daniel Prude, who was experiencing mm-hmm. mental health crisis. He was outside. It was cold. He was naked in the street. And they took him and smashed him down into the pavement and, uh, and, and killed him. And then to add insult to injury, the police union, and these police unions um, play roles yeah. to protect the police and cover up their wrongdoing and help them come up with false narratives, the police union got a copy of the body-worn camera video um, two days after Daniel Prude's murder, and the family of Daniel Prude didn't get that body, uh, body camera footage for six months, and they had to file several lawsuits to get it. Right, right. And I've, I've read about that before. Uh, I know here in, you know, in St. Louis during Ferguson, I mean, I was there, and um, the officer that killed Michael Brown talk about how police are allowed to really tamper with evidence. Um, he was allowed to go home, change his clothes, wash his clothes, and take a shower after a shooting so that any gunpowder residue would have been tampered with. And, exactly. and nothing happened. And, and again, if anybody else had done that, tampering with evidence is a big problem, but they were allowed to do it. To do it. Um, just yes, one of the one of the findings of the commission is that um, mm-hmm. there is a pattern of cover-ups, obstruction of justice, manipulation, and destruction of evidence that provides impunity for police killings mm-hmm. against black people. And another example is the case of Henry Glover, where after the police illegally killed him, they burned the car with his body in it to try to cover it up. They were eventually charged, convicted, and later their convictions were overturned. And that's a theme mm-hmm. that runs throughout this report, Janine, which is the impunity that police officers enjoy. Derek Chauvin, who was convicted of second-degree, third-degree murder, second-degree murder, Mm third-degree murder, and second-degree manslaughter, was the exception to the rule, and that's because that young woman had a video of, you know, right. cell phone trained on uh, on what Chauvin was doing, torturing uh, George Floyd to death for nine minutes and 29 seconds. And if that had not gone viral and there hadn't been protests all over the world, chances are right. George Chauvin never would have been brought to justice. And most officers are not charged. When they are charged, they're charged with minor offenses um, right. and, uh, and, and they're often acquitted or their their convictions are overturned. It's very rare that you see accountability for police killings, police violence. And there's also this blue coat of silence, the thin blue line, where their brethren cover up for them and uh, and don't blow the whistle on them. And we had three other officers helping Derek Chauvin squeeze the life out of George Floyd. The fourth officer, Tao, was, was standing guard and threatening the bystanders with mace if they went to Mr. Floyd's uh, assist, assistance and so this uh, this blue code of silence plus the police right. unions uh, plus the destruction of evidence and the the right. culture of impunity means that right. they can basically kill black people and get away with it, get away with murder. Yeah, I saw on, I saw in the report also that they mentioned how not only police officers and their unions, but that prosecutors as well, coroners, and what they call independent medical examiners were listed as pos- as accomplices, quote, as accomplices in the service of impunity. And uh, it also mentioned how there was, quote, an absence of judicial review of prosecutors 
virtually unfettered discretion. So a lot of people don't realize prosecutors have a lot of discretion. Uh, could you kind of speak to those two points in a way that, again, our audience can understand? Yes. The prosecutorial, the prosecutorial discretion is virtually unfettered. Um, there is no review of that, of, of the decision by a prosecutor to bring charges or not to bring charges. And oftentimes the prosecutors will not even bring a case to the grand jury and ask them for an indictment. Um, in about 95% of the cases, prosecutors get what they want when they do bring cases to the grand jury. The grand jury is basically an aider and a better to, to uh, this prosecutorial Sorry. misconduct. And uh, in the cases, in the case of um, Michael Brown, um, the, there was a grand jury. The, the officer testified no cross-examination at all. Um, and also um, there, is, there is complicity between the prosecutor and the grand jury, but also um, between the prosecutor and, and, the, and the police unions, the police officials, mm -hmm. um, and, the, um, and the coroners sometimes who will – uh, we had one case where it was an inexperienced uh, pathologist, and uh, there was mm -hmm. a police officer overseeing the autopsy and not even providing the medical examiner with the evidence of tasering and uh, and and you know the video. And uh, the the cause of death was cocaine uh, was uh, cocaine ingestion. There was trace trace amounts of cocaine. It was similar to, right. to what they tried in George Floyd. Right, um, right. So the medical examiner, examiners are complicit as well. Mm. And when you, when you think that the police are the investigative arm of the, of the prosecutors, of the district attorneys, etc., um, right. they protect them. The prosecutors protect the police officers. And so there well. is this complicity in covering up and and not bringing these officers to justice and we had several examples of that as well in the Tamir Rice case the 12 year old who was playing with a toy gun in the park right. um, there was also uh, no cross-examination of the police officer at the grand jury oh. and so when you say that prosecutors have unfettered um, discretion so there, there's no criterion or anything for them how do we hold prosecutors accountable then if there's no criterion, if it's all just whatever mood they're in? I mean, how do we, what, how can we hold them accountable? Well, in, in most cities, prosecutors are, are elected um, and mm -hmm. uh, they need to be defeated in, in, the, in the next election. Okay. And people, com the community, has to hold their feet to the fire. They respond to pressure the same way any political actor, and there are legal right. actors, but there are also political actors, respond to pressure. Sure. And, uh, and that's really what happened with George Floyd. It was the power of the people, um, the mass sure. protests. That and the the uh, courage of the 18-year-old girl with the with the cell phone. Uh, it, right. Her battery didn't die, thank goodness, and uh, and that went viral. But it's it really takes pressure. They're not going to do it out of the goodness of their hearts, especially mm -hmm. because the theme running through all of this, uh, the investigation of the commission and the report, is racism. 
systemic racism, yeah. and it goes back to the, the slave patrols um, where black people were controlled, their bodies were controlled. In fact, um, you know, very close to the beginning of the report, um, we have a section called the Genesis of Systemic Racist Police Violence and Structural Racism in the United States, and we talk about the slave patrols as antecedents of modern policing, from slave codes to black codes, racism in the militari- militarization of policing, and you have under the 1033 program, the National Defense Authorization Act, right. tremendous amounts of military equipment that police departments have. I mean, they have tanks, right. they have assault weapons, they have all kinds of things um, that make them look like an invading army, and that has to stop as well. Yeah, it, it, it does. You know, even here in, in St. Louis with the with Michael Brown's case, the Ferguson prosecutor in spite of worldwide pressure, he still the, the grand jury said no problem, and and that just shows you how the depth of the racism here is it's beyond belief. Um, there's a lot of different uh, recommendations here. Um, of all the recommendations, what would you say if you could name three your top three and why? Could you tell us what they are? Um, well, you're talking about recommendations addressed to the executive branch of the U.S. government. Um, one is to accept the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court. Another is to support the BREATHE Act, which is aimed at divesting federal resources from policing and investing in uh, non-punitive approaches to community safety, um, removing a qualified immunity, which lets officers mm-hmm. off the hook um, and right. prevents families from uh, getting compensation for their loss, and also um, demilitarizing the policing and outlawing the use of force except in conformity with international law, outlawing the excessive use of tasers, prohibiting no-knock warrants, which Breonna Taylor right. was a victim of, um, outlawing right. the use of force except in conformity with international law, which means that lethal force can only be used when absolutely necessary to protect against an imminent threat of death or great bodily injury. And there is no state in the country um, that uh, requires that the use of force be a last resort. And just one more thing, and that is in Minneapolis... Um, and and uh, George Floyd and Philando Castile were victims of this. Um, the police unions sponsor what's called killology training. They train officers to kill, not to de-escalate, but to kill uh, as you know, their first first line uh, of of action. And uh, that also has to stop. Yeah, and, and you know one of the main themes throughout the media, especially corporate media, has been that. Well, the, with Derek Chauvin and some of these other cases, it's a case of a few bad apples. And this report clearly demonstrates it's not bad. It's not a few bad apples. It is systemic, and this is something that is it's it's a major theme. You know, the systemic racism is a major theme in policing in the United States. And, and how, you know, again, how do we change that that dialogue? Because it's just it's like talking to a wall. 
Well, that's why it's so important that things like this commission report um, educate people, and this is going to be widely distributed not just to the UN and uh, and the U.S. government and the Congress, but also mm-hmm. to activists, to movement people, to people on the ground. Oh. It, it it includes not just findings from the 44 hearings that we conducted, but also mm-hmm. facts and figures that bolster our findings about the fact that this is not just a few bad apples. The entire system is rotten. The entire system of policing uh, black bodies is, uh, is, is, is rife with racism, and this is not a new phenomenon. This goes way back. It goes back to slavery. It goes back to the genocide of indigenous peoples and, uh, and all the way through, um, uh, after Reconstruction, Jim Crow, and it exists to this day. And we've seen that. We saw Donald Trump really unleash the dogs of racism that have always been there, but uh, basically ratify it, and it came out of the woodwork. Um, And uh, and a lot of what we're seeing in the national politics is – steeped in racism um and yeah. uh, and you know not just policing but the voter suppression 43 states are right. trying to pass laws or have passed laws um to make to basically um maintain this country as uh, as you know white people in power and keep black people right. down keep black people from from voting you know it's a crime to give people standing in line food or water in georgia right. and uh, this voter suppression is also a very very serious problem and that is also steeped in structural racism yeah it has we've done several shows on it actually so you know once again this is something that I, I I read through the you know the summary at least, and it it just turns your stomach. Um, so you know there's a lot of different recommendations, and I, you know I'm looking through them, and you know one of the things that the report said, and this was a statement. It wasn't a recommendation, but it was a statement of fact that was so blatant, and it was quote. Many black people are killed in broad daylight to intimidate communities and because officers don't fear accountability, end quote. And, and it's just so blatant. And, you know, once again, I, I don't have a whole lot of faith in the present Congress whatsoever. Um, if we take some of these cases to court, especially Fourth Amendment cases, um, you know, you mentioned a, a, a decision where basically the entire court came on board. Um, given the present makeup of the SCOTUS, how do we how do we push this forward? I mean, it's oh, yes. Kind of, well, that, that yes, it is a problem. I mean, that was a court that was more evenly balanced, I guess you would say, right. politically. Um, the Wren case that legalized pretextual stops. Um, and, uh, and, and it is a real problem, and that's where the power of the people comes in. Um, that's where it's so important that uh, we lobby and pressure the executive branch, the congressional branch, but also that people exercise their First Amendment rights and demonstrate and demand that this stop and demand accountability, and that's what happened after George Floyd's murder. And I just want to say another thing um, that, that, that we have in this report, and that is how racist police violence creates generational trauma 
for people of African right. descent. There was a case of Manuel Elijah Ellis, um, and a friend of the Ellis family, Ms. Jamika Scott, testified at one of our hearings, and she said, we're broken. Generations of us are emotionally tired. Our bodies are weathered, and it causes us physical illness. It causes us lifelong ailments and diseases. It causes us generational trauma that we are passing on. We are traumatized. We live in a constant state of PTSD. We are hypervigilant. We are fearful. We are anxious. We are depressed, and it tears hold in families and communities. It's not just one family. It's what happens to one family in this community. It happens to all of us, and it happens. It has lasting echoes throughout generations. It does. It does. Um, You know, I just want to thank you for coming on to the show, for being part of this incredibly important report. Um, We're going to continue to discuss this on multiple shows because it, it... the more we discuss it, the more action hopefully we can get. Um, you know, I, you know, you, you've said it all basically. I, I know um, this is. I, I've got a quote here from Mariah Moore, sister of Kayla Moore, and I think it says it all. Quote: With six officers on top of her, putting her in this torture device, did they realize at some point she had stopped moving? They failed to check on Kayla because her last breath. Her last words were, get off me, I can't breathe. And they ignored her, her cries for help, end quote. I I just, I want to thank you so much for being on the show. Is there anything else you want to add? Yes, um, if people go to the Inquiry Commission, just just Google Inquiry Commission, and that's the website mm-hmm. of the of the commission. And a copy of the report, a 188 page report, is on that website. Mm-hmm. But you can click on various. There's a, there's a four page right. uh, annotated table of contents. You can click on various sections that you might be interested in. And I urge people to read the report and use it. And we're going to be posting that also on our website so people can access it. Um, You know, once again, I just want to thank you so very much for, again, appearing on our our show. We love having you. You are brilliant and a breath of fresh air to a very sick government. So thank you so much, Marjorie. Thank you, Janine, for having me, and thank you for your great work. Oh, bless you. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay. So there we have it. That was Marjorie Cohn, noted legal expert. And, you know, once again, we're so grateful that she appeared on the show. Um, when uh, We're going to be posting, as I said before, the actual report itself where you can find it, that is. And when you look, and, and Marjorie, you know, she's so bright and, and a lot of things she talked about, you have to sit and think about twice. But there were multiple recommendations that she covered them, but rather quickly. So I'm going to kind of go over them a little bit. So the findings and recommendations to the High Commissioner of the Human Rights Council, um, they go you know, basically quite down a long list, um, one of which is they mandated uh, they want to conduct a full investigation into police violence, into violent police incidents uh, against people of African descent in the U.S. And then to determine whether that particular level of violence against the black community 
constitutes gross, what they call, quote, gross violation of human rights and whether crimes under international law have been and continue to be committed, end quote. And they they have, okay? We're, you have to remember that when these studies, when they when they pose these questions, they're going to answer the questions, too. It, it, it's, they're not questioning whether or not this happened. We know it happened, but they still have to post it as a question and then present their evidence. And we know that, but this is, again, an academic legal report, and we know this has happened. They've also recommended that um, in order to establish basically a, a process that is ongoing that will monitor what they call systemic racist police violence in the U.S., they were, request, they were demanding an appointment of an independent expert on systemic racist police violence in the U.S. And as Marjorie said, they called for the demilitarization of law enforcement, uh, and that means ending the 1033 program, which basically was me adding on that, which gives military-grade equipment to your local police department. In essence, um, Fallujah has arrived in the middle of Toledo, Ohio. And that's not hyperbole. It's, it's, it's the truth, and, and they don't need this, okay? Um, and... They, you have to also remember, too, when I'm discussing these particular recommendations, 1033 program, which, again, gives military-grade equipment straight from the war zones to your local police department, that was actually created under the Clinton administration. So as much fun as it is to blame Trump for everything, this went across both party lines because apparently the black community and other communities of color aren't important to these politicians except during election day. So the, the report also called for, as Arne Marjorie said, an end to police, an end to impunity, a demand for police accountability, especially when racist violence and unjustified force occurs. And this accountability, this call to accountability, has to uh, appear before independent civilian review boards. Uh, and in criminal and civil proceedings in our justice system in the U.S. Now, we've, even after Ferguson, we talked about the need for independent civilian review boards. And a few popped up. They weren't particularly effective. And part of the problem is you have police unions, as Marjorie alluded to, that basically insist on writing contracts where police officers are above the law. That has to stop. Okay, it just does. Uh, another recommendation, the commissioners uh, said that the, uh, the call for the Office of the Prosecutor of the ICC or the International Criminal Court, quote, upon receipt of the report of the Commission of Inquiry to initiate an investigation into crimes against humanity, Article 7, pursuant to his or her powers under the Rome Statute, Article 15, end quote. Okay, it's legalese, but it's basically saying we're not going to let these local people get away with this anymore. These are crimes against humanity. Um, you could argue, or rather I can argue, as a person, as a Jew who lost family in the Holocaust, blacks, the way they've been treated historically in this country is akin to the way Jews were treated in the lead-up to the Holocaust during and shortly after. Okay, the only difference in my opinion is that the Nazis were more efficient about it and murdered much more rapidly. That's all. I went there. 
another recommendation is that they call the executive branch, that means the president, to sign on to the jurisdiction and acknowledge the jurisdiction of the International Crim Criminal Court. Um, that would be, uh, as they put in the report here, quote, in relation to the U.S. under Article 12, with respect to any and all crimes against humanity as defined in the Rome Statute. Okay. And then it also says that they demand that we sign the Rome Statute of the ICC and send it to the U.S. Senate for ratification. Okay. Well, we know we're not going to get that right now. We're not going to get it from the Republicans, definitely. But there's also several Democrats that are too cowardly to sign on. If we had uh, a majority of members of the Senate that were progressives, that were squad members, we'd have a chance. But right now, no. Um, it also calls to remove what's called the non-self-executing language in the ratification of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights and or pass full implementing legislation of this treaty, including the, I'm reading straight from it, direct quote, including provisions in Article 20, which prohibits propaganda for war and speech that promotes hatred of racial or religious groups or incites discrimination of violence, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, or incites discrimination or violence against people of racial or religious groups. Um, it also calls for us to fully, quote, to fully enforce, uh, lost my place here, folks, fully enforce the International Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination and the Convention Against Torture and Other Cruel, Inhuman, or Degrading Treatment or Punishment, which the U.S. has ratified, end quote. It also urges that the U.S. ratify all the other international human rights treaties and regional treaties calls in the U.S. to support legislation that would, as Marjorie said, divest, in other words, take away federal resources from police departments and from our prisons and end the what they call the criminal legal system-driven harms that have disproportionately criminalized black and black, brown communities. I mean, this isn't hard to figure out, folks. As I said before, we will post um, we'll post the, the actual link where you can find the paper. Um, another recommendation is to, quote, create an effective and robust system of combating institutionalized racism within all law enforcement agencies to be monitored by an independently elected body in consultation with civil society organizations committed to principles of civil liberties and non-discrimination, end quote. It all makes perfect sense. Folks, this isn't a case of a few bad apples. It just isn't. That's an excuse. Make no mistake about it. And any of us who fail to be anti-racist and just turn a deaf ear and a blind eye, then you're complicit. You're just as complicit as Derek Chauvin. I'm sorry, there's no other way to put it. So the report goes on and on and on. Um, there's so many recommendations I can't get through it all. Uh, one of the last recommendations, though, 
is that the commissioners, they recommend the U.S. executive and legislative branches acknowledge that the slave trade was not only a crime against humanity, but also a major core cause of other manifestations, they call it, of racism, racial discrimination, Afrophobia, xenophobia, and related intolerance. And it calls for reparations for past injustices and crimes against people of African descent. And the commission also recommends that the U.S. Congress establish a commission to examine not only the enslavement and racial discrimination in the colonies in the U.S., from 1619, but to the present, and again, re recommend appropriate remedies. I want to say that here, in my home state of Missouri, they are pushing through a bill, the Republicans are, that will basically outlaw the teaching in our schools, the teaching of the 1619 Project or Howard Zinn's History of the United States, anything that mentions basically a, a narrative other than the nonsense we were learned that we learned in school. And districts and teachers that insist on teaching the truth about slavery, whether they use the 1619 Project, Howard Zinn's History of the United States, and so on and so forth, any district or, or teacher under that act that does so, they will find their state funding yanked, at least in part. This is censorship. Make no mistake about it. And it is no different when the Nazis gave rise. Um, as I've said before, when you look at injustice, the black community in particular receives the worst treatment historically. And when you look at that, that same black community is the political canary in the coal mine. They just are. They're our early warning system because whatever happens to them will eventually happen to the rest of us if we get in the way. There was a case about a week ago and an elderly woman, a white woman, she had dementia, she got confused, walked out of Walmart, forgot to pay. Uh, they stopped her at the door and she offered her credit card. She was clearly confused. Uh, they refused to let her pay for it and they took the goods away. Apparently, they called the police at this Walmart, and these officers followed her, and this woman was barely five feet tall. You can tell by the camera, the video that the police had, that she was incredibly confused, obviously had dementia. She was barely five feet tall and probably weighed, they said she weighed 80 pounds sopping wet. And it took two officers climbing on top of her to handcuff her. She didn't pose any danger. So once again, this isn't about training. It's not that our police need better training. Bigotry, racism, this type of fascism, this type of criminal violence isn't a function of not having had training. It's not a function of a lack of training. It's a function of a lack of humanity. It's a function of a lack of human decency. It's a function of a lack of mutual respect for your fellow human beings. We need to stop accepting these excuses. So we're going to be talking about this on EJR. 
And uh, also on Sunday, I, I urge you to check our program out there. Um, we haven't ended this report, okay? We're going to be continually talking about this because if there's, Dr. King said it right, an injustice against one is an injustice against all. I thank you for tuning in, and with that, I say good night and God bless. Hey, hey, uh, that is it for us tonight. We'll be back next week with more of this thing that we're doing and uh, making some announcements, changing schedules a little bit, improvements, you know, pardon us. day next Sunday show everything might be pre-recorded we'll see it's probably going to be pre-recorded it's still going to be good and you'll still tune in I know you will yes you will